Seven blessings, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Through the Moon Door podcast, where we talk all about George R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. Uh, if you are watching this right now live on YouTube, it is the seventh day of that second month of the year that is not pronounceable. But if you're listening to this uh, as a podcast on the day it comes out, then it may uh, very well be Valentine's Day. So uh, if you have a significant other with uh, whomst to spend this day, what are you doing listening to this? But uh, <laughs> if you if you don't, we share your grief. You're not alone. <laughs> and I hope that this next uh, however many minutes, we're gunning for one and a half hours, I think. But, you know, we don't have... Well, it might be a little rough, maybe two hours, but... We'll, we'll we'll set your mind off things for a couple of minutes here. And uh, yeah, so Valentine's Day, it's a, it's a day where we celebrate romance in all its in all its shapes and forms. And therefore today in this episode, uh, me, myself and my wonderful guest Rohan will be talking about one of the, what I think is probably the most interesting romantic character relationship in uh, Song of Ice and Fire, certainly one of the most well-developed uh, in, just in terms of how much of material there is to look at. And that is the relationship between Cersei and uh, Jamie. But before we get into that, I would like to address that uh, I've noticed, I've uh, been noticing when I'm editing the, the audio tracks for these episodes that there is this weird kind of hobby like uh, stuff going on with my audio. It's almost sometimes there and sometimes it's not. I haven't yet been able to figure out where it comes from. I think you can still listen to the episode pretty well, even if it's there. So just think of it as a feature, not a bug of this wonderful podcast. Um, so yeah, I want. Oh, there we have Sam and uh, Stephen from Here Be Dragons and Leaf in the chat. I want to say hello to them. Also, hello to everyone listening as a podcast on Anchor, Spotify, and all those other things. But that's enough for me. We have a guest, Rohan. Introduce yourself. Who are you? Where can people find you? Why are you here? <laughs> what series oh, of life wow. decisions? brought you here you? today who are you that's a loaded question um, i'm rowan i'm um i definitely am a like hardcore jc shipper and yet i the purpose of this is not to convince people oh you must ship this it's really about what i've been i feel like i've been waiting to do this for over six years because um so i have a lot of material yikes but, but um basically it's also always been very confounding to me that this is the most narratively important romantic relationship in the series as you were saying and because literally it's the whole inciting incident there wouldn't be a, this whole series wouldn't exist if it weren't for this relationship because Bran seeing them fuck and then th him getting thrown out the window is the inciting incident narratively and yet so where I'm coming from is a place of well it's I feel like there I've never truly seen a like thorough analysis of their dynamic in a way that is not quite um, just about talking at how wrong and bad it is, and it isn't. A, it is not a healthy relationship in any regard. Um, but yeah, I yeah, think that's certainly just, true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but but at, and at the same time, just completely. Um, oh yeah, there's going to be a lot of f bombs. That's yeah, anytime I open my mouth, there's going to be a lot of f bombs. Um, but so the issue for me is like to ignore this central relationship. To me, speaks a lot to the kind of puritanical nature of what I see in humanity um i think that yeah. like in terms of i was trying to think about why doesn't anyone talk about jc and just for context i refer to their like their ship name or whatever is jc i don't say twincest because i think it kind of makes light of incest which is not 
something to be made light of. Um, and also I'm a twin, so it weirds me out. Um, but so kind of what comes out for me is that I think the kind of just brushing off of this relationship as, oh, that's weird, that's bad, relates to a lot about moralism in both the fandom and just the world. Um, I was, I've talked about this more on, I was in Amy Blackfire's episode, Analyzing Cersei, because she's just my, I just, she means everything to me. And so I love to analyze her and we talked about why do people can dismiss her? And it, to me, it relates a lot to this thing bad, I'm distancing myself from it. And like, even for example, with a character like Sansa, people tend to only start liking her when she's good, when they can root for her, when she's quote unquote whiny or bratty, they don't, we don't like her. We wanna be on the side of people who we want to see ourselves reflected in. And people don't want to see themselves reflected in Cersei and in this relationship. But the thing is to go into the Valentine's Day piece of this, I do strongly believe that they love one another. And as I said earlier, that doesn't mean that it's a healthy love. I think that us distancing ourselves from this relationship and just deciding not to talk about it is letting ourselves off the hook in terms of thinking about relationships and love and kind of idealizing love as something that's only ever a positive, healthy thing, when I think probably the majority of romantic relationships out there have very unhealthy qualities. Um, and I actually, I'll talk about this later, I actually view their relationship as sort of a critique of relationship norms, um, unintentionally or not. So I'm just, I really wanted to give space, actually, so Yogi and I were talking about, um, initially we we're gonna do something about queerness and he said like, why don't we talk about ships? And I was like, well, if we do that, I'm gonna have to talk about JC and that's like too much content. You know, so we decided to do JC and because there's, I'll go into this of course, but there's so much related. So for my own background, who am I? I'm a therapist and a lot of my therapeutic training relates to why I'm so invested in and passionate about interested in this relationship. Um, I think that it, there's so much writing that feels like it was almost done about their relationship, about how human beings work. And so I think a lot about their relationship speaks more to the human condition in ways that we, again, don't really like to see in ourselves. And also before I was a therapist, I had a background and degree in literary analysis and literary studies. So for me, I just really love thinking about this relationship. I love this relationship because it is the most complex one in the series, as you were saying. Um, and to just ignore that all this complexity because it's wrong and bad is doing such a disservice to Martin's work. And again, trying to push away the pieces of ourselves that we don't like to see. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think it's interesting that you bring up the point of uh, people not not liking their relationship or not liking uh, them or to be invested in, in their relationship because the characters are not likable or people. Because I th always think when we talk about liking literary characters, we sort of have to distinguish whether we're talking about do I like them as in do I think that they're compelling and enjoyable to read or would I be friends with them if I lived in Westeros? And I think the answer to the second question for both Jamie and Cersei for me would be definite no, because they're not they're not great people to be around. Um, but uh, are they compelling characters? Certainly. And one of the things that makes George R. R. Martin's writing so great is that you can see parts of yourself reflected in every single character that he writes. Or maybe not like Gregor Clegane or something, but <laughs> certainly all of the POVs. He finds a way of incorporating, as he says, part of him, part of himself. And, and, and inevitably, with so many characters, you're going to find people who reflect things about yourself. Maybe sometimes even things that you, you don't particularly, uh, not your best qualities, but he still writes them so well. And yeah, as you were saying, 
when we talk about liking characters or liking this relationship, we say we like it not because we condone <laughs> incest or anything like that, or torturing bards to get false confessions. It's just that they are a very compelling, uh, psychologically complex, and and very yeah, just an interesting relationship to read. It's and that is what we're here to talk about today. To to do exactly as you said, to dive dive deep into the psychology of this relationship because it is it stands out even amongst other romantic relationships that we see in the series because i i don't think there's any other relationship that is as i think the word intense is probably accurate because the, the amount of obsession that they have for each other and the amount of times they think about each other it's it's incredible like for example caitlin and edda another couple where we get the the pov they don't think about each other that much once they go their separate ways and uh, Jon Snow will think about Egret every one, every every now and then, but just especially in those early like Storm of Swords chapters, Cersei is just constantly on Jamie's mind, and it's it's that level of of obsession, obviously, part with paired with the fact that they are related and <laughs> siblings, that really makes their their relationship very interesting. So I wanted to begin by asking you, uh, what do you think? Where does this 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 obsession come why do they love each other so much and how did their relationship Ooh. develop to get them to this point well if we're going to go into that that means i'm diving straight into hans kohut and self-psychology um yep. so basically um because i was gonna do my little like manifesto of why i'm so passionate about the relationship which i, I can do that later the, the self-sex so we'll get there we'll get to all of it um so what so basically i'm gonna go into some nerdy therapist stuff um, there's something I read, I, I did a paper on Cersei in grad school, so I copied and pasted some quotes from that. Um, one quote that I'd had is, every person needs an average and expectable environment in which she can expect the world will adapt to her and in which she can adapt to the environment. So I actually talked about this with Amy on our Cersei episode. If your average and expected environment is one of paranoia and mistrust, where you can't trust anyone outside the family because your dad is Tywin Lannister and that's what you're taught the world is, then why not fuck your family members? Because who else is trustworthy? Like for Cersei, it's I'm either going to be Rhaegar's queen um, because I need to be on top. Like you want to be on top, and oh, her in many ways. And um, and then, or like if it's not being literally queen, I don't trust anyone besides my family. Even thinking about her affairs, like Lancel, ew, like what, like really, really. But he's related. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I definitely agree. I think the Lannisters have that kind of uh, very similar to the Targaryens. There's a kind of Lannister exceptionalism mm -hmm. uh, where they think that they are yes. that they are very much better than everyone else. And and this Tywin yes. has hammered this idea into his children's brains that Lannisters are the only thing that counts. That you cannot trust anyone. That no one else matters except for them. So then, like, if you take that to its, to its natural conclusion, it is why wouldn't they, these kids think that? They could never be in any kind of meaningful relationship with anyone other than members of their own family. And they are very similar in that. It's interesting that you brought up Rhaegar because they are very similar to that uh, in terms of the Targaryens. The Targaryens are another family that has this idea of exceptionalism. There's literally a doctrine okay. called the Doctrine of Exceptionalism <laughs> referring to the Targaryens and their practice of marrying brother to sister. Okay. And obviously the Lannisters, the Cersei and Jaime, they use the Targaryens as an excuse a lot of the time, kind of to justify it to themselves, but also to, to other people, to Eddard, that the, the Targaryens married brother and sister for hundreds of years, so why shouldn't them? 
because in their mind they are just as exceptional and wonderful as as, as the <laughs> Targaryens. And there's a lot more similarities between the Targaryens and the Lannisters, but that is sort of like, I think what you're saying. It's this idea of, of, of the, no one matters but us. It's well, also I, the, the, the core of Jamie's arc is to let go of that fuck you got mine attitude that Lannisters have where he really only cares about himself and his own family. Uh, yeah, so that's an interesting and that's, point. And that's part of why I love the Tits. I'm... I have every I have the takes that everyone hates the most. So part of why I love the Tits and Dragon show's ending for Jamie and Cersei so much is because he's literally like literally the last line is nothing else matters, only us. That's literally their whole relationship. I, yes. Anyways, but that show doesn't exist. So um yeah, it's funny because I I don't know where I heard this, but once I heard someone call the Lannisters bootleg Targaryens and then the Tyrells bootleg Lannisters. So I think there is that piece of like striving to be Targaryen-esque in their in that exceptionalism. Um, and so then, so kind of in terms of why do they love each other, what is going on here? So I'm gonna get really psychological here. So there's a psychologist called Hans Kohut who's big in the field of what's called self-psychology, which is relational. It's like less about, so kind of traditional psychoanalysis, it's all the Sigmund Freud stuff is more about drives and what drives people internally. Relational psychology, which I am definitely more into, is about, um, how relationships drive people, as you would think from the name. So, um, so Hans Kohut, who's a famous relational psychologist, um, he said that a parent's failure to empathize with their children and the responses of their children to these failures were at the root of almost all psychopathology. Do we know any non-empathic parents that might be coming to mind? Hmm. How about like seventy to eighty percent of all the dads in the story, but mostly but, time. <laughs> Yes, also Tyrion. Yes. So what happens, if we're talking about non-empathetic, I think if we're talking about like the horrible father hall of fame, we're probably <laughs> talking about like Tywin Lannister, Randall Tarly, Bruce Bolton, Hoster Tully is probably also up there with that whole forcing his daughter to get an abortion that will permanently mess with her yeah. mental health and physical health. Um, so yeah, but yeah, Tywin takes the cake. He's easily the worst father. In right. The so series. the thing is. The thing is that insufficient parental empathy may contribute to what, as Kohut talks about, can, can contribute to the development of a narcissistic personality. No any narcissists in this story? According to Kohut. So empathy may be insufficient when a parent cannot react to or adequately nurture a child, is unable to meet the, we'll talk about this later, what's called self-objects needs of a child. So if the disposition of the parent and child don't align, all and any of these can affect the child's ability to meet their own needs later in life. So kind of that is to say, I'm um, sorry, I went a little backwards I'm going through my notes. Um, so what happens is that we all human beings have something, have things referred to called self, well, according to Kohut, you don't have to agree, have what's called self objects. Self objects are external objects that function as part of self machinery, such as he says, objects which are not experienced as separate and independent from the self. There are persons, objects, or activities that complete the self and which are necessary for a person's functioning. So Kohut describes early interactions between the infant and caregivers as involving the infant self and self objects. So I'm gonna throw out there, it feels good to feel him inside me. She is literally, so Jamie and Cersei are, like they have been raised in this environment where they are primed for narcissistic personalities and, un in, and unable to kind of feel whole without external without external self objects, and basically they literally are internalizing the she like so I'll talk about this later. 
drink every time I say that, um, internalizing the idealized self object. Like when she says, Jamie and I are more than brother and sister. We are one person in two bodies. We shared a womb together. He came into this world holding my foot, our old maester said. When he is in me, I feel whole. And I really like the ellipsis there that George puts. He goes, I feel like dot, 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 whole. Like she really is thinking about this and, or Jerry Maguire, you complete me, you know. But um, basically observing the, drinking and narcissism too, yeah. Observing the any person's self-object connections is a fundamental part of their psychology. For instance, a person's taste in life partners may fill a self-object function for that particular individual. If psychopathology is explained as an incomplete or defect self, then self-objects might be described as the self-prescribed cure for that sense of emptiness and incompleteness. I think this is reminding us of something, isn't it? It very much is, yeah. <laughs> I think it's very interesting that Jamie and Cersei think of themselves as, not as a couple, but as a whole. Right. Like so they it's not need... even necessarily... Yeah, they need each other. It's like they're, they're like they think of themselves as incomplete, like only one half of a a greater whole. And I'm glad you're saying both of them because there's just so much of the BS in the fandom of like s describing this as an abusive, one-sided relationship. Um, it's not that's just something where I can't. I just, anyone who kind of puts that discourse forward, I just can't take it seriously or engage with it remotely. Um, he is so toxic and possessive and it's very like in terms of the idea like I'll so I'll go actually go into the next piece because this is what it goes into so we're we've already established that where their love comes from is kind of based on the environment that they were raised in each of them needs this external self object to function and we all have self objects my like my we you know we all have like external interest people things that we that we feel that we need to complete us but not when it comes to the extent that it's impacting them and their sense of identity as complete as like not being whole without the other person that's when the pathology comes in and so then Kohut describes a few other concepts that to me are the explanation of what how the relationship works so and it's and he literally i mean the names of these concepts you're like how did george r, r. martin not read this so the primary so the first one is um as we talked about, so so the source of narcissism results from a lack of parental empathy. And so when parents fail to provide empathic responses, a child would not develop a healthy sense of self-esteem and would therefore look to other sources to gain a sense of worth and value. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. So the first, of, so there's like three, there's a few primary concepts in Kohut's work that also are very much about the JC relationship. The first is called mirroring. In mirroring is when others serve as a mirror that reflects back a sense of self-worth and value. Just as people use a mirror to check appearance, mirroring with other people involves use of the affirming and positive responses of others to see positive traits within the self. So I see that as, yeah, that drink. So I see that as like the driving component of their relationship. Um, think about how when, if, if there's page 557 of Feast for Crows, Cersei plucks the JC relationship starts to come apart when they're no longer able to be an affirming mirror for one another. So Cersei plucked a hair from Jamie's chin and held it up. It was gray. All the color is draining out of you, brother. 
you've become a ghost of what you were, a pale crippled thing. So they're literally visually not mirroring each other anymore after his maim after his hand gets cut off, which leads to the unraveling because they can no longer be these positive affirming mirrors for one another. And I think that like the we, these are the only times we see in A Feast for Crows the first and Storm is when we see them interact from their points of views, like for the first time. So I believe that a lot of snarkiness and bitchiness from both ends was probably always a part of their relationship, but it gets exacerbated here because, and it, it hurts more here because there's also not the affirming piece of I can look to you to feel whole, to feel whole and to feel good. For Jamie, I think this comes in bigger for Jamie in terms of mirroring as why he loves Cersei because um, he is, a, as we know, he's really obsessed with honor and the idea of wanting to be honorable, even though he's he's not. Um, and the fandom is too obsessed with that. But so basically- He is not, but for- What are you gonna for say? For the good. He is not, he's not honorable, but uh, in, in the traditional sense of, of what it means in his society to be chivalrous. Yes. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like he did the right thing when he didn't kill Ares. Mm-hmm. As opposed to Hesop Barristan, who is regarded as honorable, who stood by and did nothing when Ares was raping his wife and burning innocent people. So that's kind of like, that's a bit of a different topic. I just wanted to, to put it yeah. out there that him not being honorable isn't really necessarily a bad thing just because their society's idea of what honor is is kind of dumb. Right, right. It's more for me, it's this like, he's trying to psych, he's trying to think of himself as a much better person than he is. So like, a, for me, the primary example is when he has that line of saying, like, he sends Brienne to rescue Sansa. And he's like, Sansa is my last chance at honor versus like, I'm rescuing Sansa because this is the right thing to do. <laughs> yeah, also, he didn't go himself. He sent someone else to do it. So there's that right. as well. So like this, to, that to me, so speaks to how he like how he sorry needs his honor i'm pausing and being weird because i'm going through my notes so yeah mm. so basically so in terms of the self object he has a virgin whore complex issue he's like he needs to see women as either virgin or whores when he learns that cersei has had the audacity to sleep with other men while he was presumed dead the audacity um if only he knew he slept with a woman although he'd probably be like it doesn't count like most people but um but so he, he actually, he reverts so to the opposite end of the spectrum. He calls her the queen of whores um, in his head. He like, so I think for him in terms of the mirroring, they, they both feel needed by each other and they both need to feel needed to feel okay living in this world. Um, yeah. Sorry, I have some quotes They're about that. They're also both incredibly jealous. Um, oh, yeah. 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 So I think. Sorry, I'm trying to find the yeah. the quote. Um, but basically, like, so okay, they love what like they are extensions of their selfhood. So for him, it's like if I like when he has the line where he she said where he says, "Why does Cersei need the the warrior? She has me." He just needs this relationship so badly to feel like he is this powerful, strong person, which he is. He is very powerful and strong physically. I don't think he's that powerful and strong emotionally, but he needs to feel like he is. And so if he, if she is, if he can see her, and I think he's doing so much like self-blinding, like she's never been this pure maiden ever, but he needs to, to convince himself that that's what she is so that he can see himself as the knight in shining armor, the, like, the, the chivalrous knight, for, like in terms of what you were talking about. And then for her, yes. like if he's like, if I am protecting a woman and this woman that I love, 
that makes me a good person. And he wants so badly, as much, even though it was like banter with Catelyn, he try, he's like, yeah, I'm a dick, whatever. He wants so badly to think well of himself. And this yes. being able to quote unquote protect Cersei makes him, allows him to think well of himself. So it kind of another, um, another piece I'm finding that I want this one quote that is like to me, one of the most interesting, one of the most interesting quotes in the whole series. Uh, do but yeah. So basically, like he just this. I mean, and the thing is, yes, he could feel wanted by other women and, and like needed and like a protector and warrior with other women. But it's different because of what we talked about before in terms of the way they were raised. How is he? So, and also because she invokes like needing him too. So um. So okay. Oh, here it is. So. Jamie still wants the songs to be real, even though he has seen how false they are. Yeah, exactly. And Cersei is also tied up in Jamie's idea of his innocence. Yes. Sam, you're always right about Cersei. So, and you're going to say, I'm, I'm talking about our quote next. So here's a primary yeah. piece. I should also point out we are, we're reading from the chat. For people who are listening to this podcast are confused. Oh. <laughs> we're picking up yes. good ideas from people like Micah and Amy, Amy Blackfire from the, the chat. So in terms good of input. the mirror, and If you want yes. to give your own input, go to the YouTube channel and watch these recordings live then you can also spout your ideas when we record <laughs> sorry interruption go on oh i just got your thing about the muting so i'll mute button okay so i'll do that yes. no it's fine i haven't so, heard the echo in a while i hope people okay. at home aren't hearing so, it as well ah we'll see but basically so in terms of the mirroring aspect of like anybody who like runs their parent to feel comforted and that's like what he needs from her and vice versa there's in a feast for crows she he's reflecting on the um, time that they had sex after um, when Arya was on the run, like after the whole lady incident, so before they kill lady. But anyways, so Jamie thinks to himself, she told me she should carry her to bed. Okay, let's pause there. Literally protecting her, holding her like a baby. Um, hello, like it's all there in terms of how powerful and strong and masculine I am right now by holding her like a baby. and. Although it's she told me versus asking me, it's like there's still that commanding aspect of her. Then he says, thinks to himself, or he says it out loud to Ellen Payne. As I was fucking Cersei, she cried, I want. I thought that she meant me, but it was the Stark girl that she wanted maimed or dead. So it's, I mean, I actually think that that quote that I want is all about much more than wanting the Stark girl. I think it's about Cersei's emptiness as a whole, and that is way too. I'm not even going to approach that here. It's worth a whole other essay. That Sam, who's in the chat, and I have talked about extensively, and he's hopefully working on that essay. Um, but in terms of, um, but in terms of, like, when once he realizes that the I want is about more than him, he can't tolerate that anymore. But I think that it speaks to. I think it speaks to the fact that all of us are looking for that in relationships in some sense or another, and we don't want to recognize it because it's a it's an ugly truth. We all want to feel needed. We all want to feel powerful and strong and affirmed by our partner in that way. And when we don't get it, we feel like shit about ourselves. And sometimes we'll act in very terrible ways in order to feel better about ourselves. Yeah. Uh, I want to expand on the idea uh, that they regard each other as mirror images and, and Jamie losing his hand sort of messes with that perfect image. And it's not just the hand, it's also the fact that he shaves his head and grows a beard and it's not, like he loses a lot of weight during his captivity in Riverrun so that he's just not as physically attractive anymore when he returns to uh, to King's Landing. He goes through a lot of stuff and 
Cersei sort of, for the first time, kind of has to think of himself, I think, as his own person, separate from her, because she doesn't have that that uh, idea that he's just a part of her because he looks so unlike her now. And also, the fact that he has been uh, disabled and lost his hand means that he's, he's not a great warrior anymore the way he used to be. And a big part, I think, of their relationship was that Cersei has this internalized uh, hatred that, that she was born a woman in this world where people like Tywin Lannister and, and uh, all these other men that she thinks are you know, way more incompetent than her, and sometimes they are <coughs> Harry Swift. Uh, among others and yeah so now that she doesn't have now that she ha doesn't have this thing anymore where it's like Jamie is part of me he is what I would be if I was a man because she wants to be a, a strong warrior and she wants to be a, 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 yeah, a man like she says often I, she wishes she had been born a man she wished in the blackboard she says she wished she could go out there and fight instead of having to sit and make us hold fast hold held up with all the the ladies of the court and now that he lost his hand, it's like, well, now I cannot imagine him as that anymore. My my mirror image is not a great warrior anymore. And that upsets her. And I think that is part of what begins her idea of when she tells him, you've changed uh, when he's when he's back. That is, the, that the disillusionment starts. Uh, a lot of people like to go into Jamie's disillusionment with Cersei, which ends with him throwing that letter away and all that stuff, which we will get to uh, in good time. <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, truly, it's, it's really on both sides. Like him being away for so long, coming back so changed, it, it affects their relationship in in more ways than one, and that is a big part of it. So that's what I wanted to add to that. Oh, and the reason for anyone watching the video that I've been really holding in a giant smirk is because this is you read my mind. This was the next thing I was going to go to, and this is like my favorite thing to talk about. And I have some things that cis het people are not going to like to hear. But anyways. Um, cishet means cisgender heterosexual people. I stole people. it. I stole it. <laughs> oh, well, no, you, I'm glad you introduced it. So, um, <laughs> yes, all of that. Yes. So in terms of mirroring, so we kind of identified what does Jamie get from her? So what she gets from him is I need him inside me to feel whole. She literally need, does not feel like a complete human being without his penis. Like, let's get crude, whatever. It's, it's sex. She needs his penis inside of her to feel like a compute, complete human being. And so that also relates to the Kohut stuff of idealizing. So Kohut believed individuals need people who make them feel calm and comfortable. The external others idealized what's, oh no, the twinship, sorry. So I, there's twinship, which is the name of the Kohut concept and also Jamie Cersei. Um, twinship and alter ego means that Kohut suggested that people need to feel a sense of likeness with others. For example, children want to be similar to their parents and mimic the behaviors they observe. Over the course of healthy development, a child becomes more able to tolerate differences. And we know that they have not had a healthy development, so they cannot tolerate differences. Um, so Kohut, I mean, idealizing, Kohut saw, saw idealizing as a central aspect of early narcissism. He writes, the therapeutic activation of the omnipotent object, the idealized parent image, referred is, is anyways, a lot of psychobabble. Um, so that's about the very early need to establish a mutual self-object with an object of idealization. So that's a lot of um, a lot of talk. And how does that relate to Cersei? Um, so let me find it in my notes. Let me find it gender trouble, gender trouble. Um, so, okay, so yes. So she feels whole with him in her because he completes her by giving her the qualities that she wants to possess herself which are like we talked, I talked in Amy's episode about when she um, commissions a boat 
called the Sweet Circe, and it's with herself in male holding like a lion sword thing. And um, she she has a lot of gender problems, as we know. She does not, she resents being a woman because of it being seen as weak. And she just, like, as I was just saying about Jamie, they both don't want to be seen as weak in any way. And so I think my feelings are that um, she needs to be with him to feel whole and that because she can then feel part male by by physically, physically integrating him, his body, his dick is getting physically integrated into her. Um, and I have this kind of, this is the thing that will piss off the cishets. I have this like headcanon that like, so we know when she has the sex with Taina, she says, but it was no good. It was never good with anyone besides Jamie. I have this headcanon that she, I think it makes logical sense that she probably imagines herself as Jamie when they fuck. Um, and that's why it's only good with him. Spicy take, but it's my take. And um, yeah, you talk, you elaborated. If people want to hear an elaboration on that, there is. Uh, you've been on Amy Blackfire's YouTube channel, who has also been on this podcast, and you talked about that whole Tina Merriweather uh, scene in in detail. Yeah, but not as I much remember. in terms of like her relationship yeah. with yeah, yeah, gender yeah, yeah, yeah. and her stuff. So like, yeah. she. I think that. I don't think that I know. I, I feel like I know her so well. Um, so she needs these, like when she, in terms of the mirroring aspect of it, when she's like, he, they look identical. People like they were able as children to dress up as one another without people knowing the difference. And so it's less apparent what he would gain from dressing up as a woman, but for her to dress up as a boy, she's allowed to have all the freedoms that she wants. And only through like relate, only through physically having him inside her, which I'll talk more about when we, drink um where i want to do a kind of a more analysis of two scenes between them where this comes up a lot um i like only through actually having him inside her can she feel as she says whole and she says that multiple times in both these scenes that i want to point to um so i think that in order for her to be the person that she wants to be within this society can only be when she has him with her and in her um, and it, and I think with both of them, as we said, the things we're talking about are not healthy, you know, like it's, it would be really wonderful for both of them to be able to like work through these issues and have a health and like, and so that's, I get why people say like, oh, I don't necessarily ship them because they both should like move past this shit. But I, I feel that they're both way too deep into it to ever move past it. And that's why I really love the kind of poetic depth of their relationships and like you mentioned with when he had, his, he had shaved his head there's so many parallel lines in two of them when he she he comes back and he says the hair will go back we all know her hair grows back at one point he says something about like there was the famous line from her of what of and what of my rage and she needed a storm to match her rage and there's another line he has in feast i can't remember the exact line it's highlighted somewhere in my book um, where he talks about like and basically says like his version of and one of my rage. So I just love all the parallels that, that are going on there. But I think for her, like she he needs to be with her in order to see himself as the warrior. And so does she. She also needs to be with him to see herself as the warrior. That's true. Uh, yeah, I really like the this idea of, of Cersei's gender trouble, if you want to call it that. Um, and her you see this to go back to this to the Blackwater uh, thing where she's with Sansa, that she does do that thing where she performs her what society expect 
expects of her as a woman. So she does perform her gender in a way where she says to Sansa that, oh, she'll act brave and she acts calm and all that stuff. But really, she doesn't care about them and she wishes she could be out there and fight, but she can't express that sentiment to anyone. So there's an act aspect of performativity to the way that she conducts herself. And, and uh, what I wanted to ask you, though, is... Uh, a lot of people talk about this idea of Cersei wanting to be a man and that being part of, of, of why she has this, this intense like obsession with Jamie and, and needs him around her. But do you think that it goes both ways? Like, what do you think is it about... What does Jamie see in her? Because we never see Jamie talk about how he wants to be a woman in the same way that we see Cersei express her, her want to be a man. So why, why is Jamie so obsessed with Cersei? Where, where does his intense emotion come from? That's a great question, and that's something I've been, as we, when we decided we were doing this episode, what I've been trying to wrap my brain through more. And I think the conclusion I've come to is more of like what this role of have, of being the, the warrior in relation to her can provide him in like what we were talking about before, um, especially because she's actually one of the only people who doesn't look down upon him for being the Kingslayer. Um, so I think that it it is George makes it, and this is why I just thought I do. I love them both. I find her a more interesting character, um, but I think part of that is because it's way more understandable and obvious what she gets out of the idea of merging from him than he does. But I think also that moment of him putting himself inside her is a sense of like I am needed right now. Like I can I'm whole because I am needed. And I'm not seen as being this like horrible person. In fact, I'm being worshipped, you know. And once she no longer worships him, she can't tolerate that. I was talking to another friend recently about what if Cersei and Rhaegar had worked out, and she was saying like she actually would have been miserable because he's too obsessed, self obsessed to have worshipped her. Um, like they both need to be worshipped, and that's what even though that's his, that's what he thinks is happening. It's not completely what's happening she worships more of like what he represents than him himself but it's also really hard to delineate where his persona ends and where he begins because both of them have such a deep emptiness that i would diagnose um like both of them definitely meet the criteria for a few different personality disorders which are characterized by emptiness um so i think and they both use each other to fill that emptiness which is not not a great tactic but they don't have any other options really um that's why I'm just like, this is fucked and twisted and beautiful. And I love all the fucked, twistedness beauty of it so much versus like um, the beautiful, dark, twisted fantasy. It's just, there's just so much to get lost in from a literary perspective and psychological perspective without like, and that's why for me, I ship it so much as opposed to being like, yes, I want this relationship in real life. I think as I was saying, it also points to the ways in which we look to our partners to feel complete. Um, versus being able to be autonomous human beings in and of ourselves. Um, and like this thing of like, we shared a womb, he came into this world holding my foot, our old maester said. Um, but there's, yeah, I think I'm wondering if you'd be okay with, cause like what you were just saying before, I wonder if you're okay with kind of doing the analysis of this Beast for Crow scene at this point, because it's just like, I feel like this scene is just like what you were talking about, the performativity mm -hmm. is it. Yeah, we can do definitely do that. I just want to make one more point, and then we'll go Ooh. into that analysis of the scene, which is, uh, you mentioned earlier that a lot of people have this reading of Cersei and Jamie's relationship, that it is abusive mostly on Cersei's part, so it's Cersei taking advantage of Jamie, and I think part of the reason that it, that it, uh, impression, a lot, of, a lot of people have that impression, is because we get a much better sense of why Cersei is obsessed with 
Jamie, then we do why Jamie is obsessed with Cersei. We know that that he is very much obsessed with her. He thinks about her a lot and all that stuff. But we never get a sense as to why. Whereas with Cersei, we get a pretty clear idea that even as a child, she resented the fact that she was being groomed to do all these lady things while she while he got to do all the sword play and stuff. So there is an element of her, you know, even when they were born, she came out first, he was grasping her foot. So I do believe that she kind of takes the lead in their relationship. I think she probably is the one who initiated it when they were children. Um, but that obviously doesn't mean that uh, just because she's the more commanding presence in their relationship that that, that it's an abu- that it's a abusive one way because there is abuse by Jamie of Cersei as well. Especially I'm thinking of when they find Tywin's body and he uh, belittles her in front of all the people who are in uh, the room, like her uncle and all the other people. Like she asks him to. You know, in, the, in this moment of very you know intense emotion, her father's just been murdered, and she makes a somewhat ridiculous request. Uh, not even that ridiculous. She asks him to be the hand, and she uh, she begs him to take charge, and she needs him, and he just shrugs her off and belittles her for her stupid idea and makes fun of her. And that is also a type of abuse. That is the scene. So I did another brilliant transition, even though I didn't meant to. So let's just read that scene and hear uh, deeper into that, because, uh, yeah. The other thing I want to say to that is I think because, like, let's be real, he's kind of a simp, and that's why we can that's why his obsession with her feels a little more it like gets read by people as more sympathetic than hers with him because he's like like we can i think this is not an accurate reading i think people do read him as like deluded by love deluded by an illusion but it's not that she but he created that illusion he chose to see her as the maid instead of then later he's like she's actually the stranger hiding her face that was his fucking decision um not hers, even though she does perform femininity and, and weakness in ways that I will talk about in the scene analysis. But so, yeah, so he's a piece of shit is what I, is the bottom line. And he, so like in terms of thinking of their relationship as like this one-sided abusive thing is really just, I think just offensively stupid. I'm just gonna be honest. I think it's so fucking stupid. Yeah, um, it, it, it is regards, so it, is, it, goes, it's, it goes in line with a lot of fandom analysis with this, that, which is that there is a sort, a sort of like a, a certain level of misogyny that goes into yes. a lot of... Uh, yeah, the, and this is exactly yeah. what Amy and I talked about in our Cersei episode, which is that the reason he gets so much more sympathy is because he has his bathtub scene moment. He has that moment of, oh, he's actually not that bad. She doesn't get, she doesn't have that. She's not as redeemable. And I will get, I, I love them both. I love her more. He is a less shitty person than her. I won't deny that. Yeah, especially towards the end. Right. He is a less shitty... Mm, I think the end is where it gets kind of worse, actually. But he is a less shitty person than her. But he's still not off my hook. So basically, like, in terms of the abuse thing... So he finds out that she's... That she had affairs. How dare she? Um, So even when he... So he, like, leaves her with put this in the fire. Oh, Lord. Let me find my... For the visual aspect, I'll find the way I marked that passage up. It's hysterical. But so, um, so basically, put this in the fire doesn't even like he doesn't leave her because she treats him like shit. Yeah, you can see I have like I annotate my books a lot. Um, I'm like I wrote like shut the fuck up, bitch. <laughs> like right when he says that. Um, but so, so basically, him she does treat him really badly in a feast for crows. She's like in terms of belittling him, like mocking him, all of this. 
But that's not the reason that he's like, fuck her, I'm done, put this in the fire. It's because she was sleeping with other people. So that to me speaks to his extremely toxic narcissism and possessiveness. Um, so like put this in the fire doesn't even have to do with her and what she's done. It's to the fact it it's all about the fact that he can no longer idealize her and that she's now on the wrong side of the virgin horror continuum for him, for his taste. Like even yeah. when he said nobody calls her the queen of horrors. He needs to see her as this weak maiden to uphold, even though she never has even presented that. I mean, she's I'll point, she does sometimes. In order to see his uphold his own sense of self as powerful, especially after being emasculated, which in psychoanalysis is always, always symbolic castration. The hand cut off is symbolic castration um, via amputation. So this, like the whole the crux of it, of the like of his reaction to it is I thought that I was the warrior and Cersei was the maid, but all the time she was the stranger hiding her true face from my gaze. That true face isn't the cruelty that she treats him with. It's the fact that she dared think about other men. And because he like the other stuff he can forgive. Um so that to me is and then he also fantasized, has very extremely violent fantasies about um cutting her tongue out, not smashing her teeth in, um like about her dying, about her death. So, so yeah, hiding her from my gaze. Yeah, it's more that he's she's hiding her true self from his male gaze that wants to see himself as all powerful. But yeah, like the sec, the fact to me that his mind that once he learns she's been adulterous to even though they're not married, um, that his mind turns to oh, it would be fun to smash her teeth in and cut her tongue out. I'm like that is an abusive piece of shit. I'm sorry, and anyone, oh, yeah. I'm not oh, going to yeah. talk about. Yeah, I'm not going to talk about B-word because, like, you know that quote about um, Carrie Fisher said, like, well, I don't even think of men as people. That's uh, that's me with brainies, so I'm not even entertaining it. But, um, but like, that's why this is the only thing I'll say about it is that's why the idea of brainy is so just, like, deeply offensive to me as someone who actually loves Brienne a lot. Like, you really want sis to be with someone who's like, I'm going to cut my sister's tongue out because she slept with someone else. And I also won't entertain any idea of him truly respecting Brienne, but that's another conversation. <laughs> mm, yeah, that's another conversation. Uh, I think what it is about about that, her cheating on him, is because between Jamie and Cersei, I think especially as far as Jamie is concerned, there is a kind of unspoken, uh, an unspoken contract between the two that they are the mm -hmm. only two people in the world that matter. And so when he finds out that she's been sleeping with other people, that kind of like throws off that entire idea. Like the, the, the contract is, is broken and he's like, wait, so I'm not the only person in the world <laughs> who matches is apart from Cersei? And the, and the piece that comes in for me of like thinking of why this, why I find him such a shitty person for this is all of these times that she slept with someone is for a utilitarian purpose. She's not just going around and sleeping with people for the sake of her own pleasure. Exactly, exactly yeah. And he doesn't comprehend under, that she, as a woman, needs to right. needs to have has to engage in different survival strategies than him. He yeah. just doesn't have that extent of empathy. It was actually on the Learned Hands podcast where they talked about how all three Lannister siblings have to kind of approach the world like, like so they said Jamie like I don't remember what it was for Tyrion, but Jamie basically has to like fight the problem. He has to rely on his on his physical strength to accomplish his goals. Cersei and her her social currency is her is her femininity and beauty. So she needs to trade on that to get things. And for him to be so myopic to not see that speaks to me of his shittiness as a person. Yeah, yeah. And uh, also, I think to bring that into it is um, 
yeah, there is that aspect that he just doesn't have the the level of empathy to realize that Cersei is kind of forced to to yeah charm men and, and sleep with them and offer her body in some sort of kind of exchange for things because he just doesn't understand that there's any kind that there are any other ways of surviving in in society than just killing the people that annoy you and uh so yeah he's just a bit of a doofus to be honest jamie is not <laughs> the smartest person ever and his uh another part of his delusionment with cersei is also spending time with brienne who uh is uh, in a way uh, you know there's a thing about her being called brienne the beauty and uh, a lot, big part of it is that she sort of teaches jamie i mean not actively but that's what he gets away from it i think that there is more to beauty than just looking hot <laughs> like the Lannisters do, and that she is a good person on the inside. It's kind of, it sounds kind of cliched, but that I think is really an important aspect of the, the relationship between Jamie and Brienne, is not only does, does he let go of that Lannister exceptionalism and not caring about people other than does his immediate family. Does he? Yeah. I'm pushing back there. I really don't. I think that I think that it has the potential to go that direction. I don't think he truly internalizes those messages. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a. Uh, you can definitely argue about whether whether the, he arrives there, but it he it, it certainly forces him to contemplate it at least. Uh, a lot of people talk about how his story is about redemption, which I've never agreed with. I think his story is about exactly that, letting go of this this you know fuck you got mine mindset that the Lannisters have. By do he does care. I mean, it would like I don't think. Game of Thrones Jamie would have returned to Harrenhal and jumped into a bear pit to save Brienne. So he does care a little bit about someone who's not immediately related to him. So that's a plus. That's a little bit of a development. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and this is why I yeah. actually do like their relationship a lot as a friendship. I think it's actually more powerful if it's not sexualized for me. So I do like their relationship. And as I mentioned, I am a big, a huge fan of Brienne. Yeah. Um, yeah, just putting it out there. Yeah. But I, mean, even, not, I even, like their relationship as platonic. Yeah. Even if in the books they end up sleeping with each other the way that they did in the show i actually still think that in the end it wouldn't work out like i don't think they'd ever have a happy long-lasting relationship he would he will i do, I do we'll get into this into this later but i do definitely think that he's going to go back to cersei in the books as well um yeah like they and did in the show just speak to the abuse piece as well like another thing with him that always cracks me up is when he says that that he's mad at baby joffrey for quote taking up too much of cersei's time by breastfeeding, like, yeah, like, like grow up so that, I mean, to, to, get, to, to get actually like more analytical and, and psychological mm. about it, that has to do with like this. So she's the self object. The self object cannot belong to someone else in the same way. Like we all probably had a stuffed animal we loved, we really loved as a kid. Um, so if someone else took our stuffed animal, we're like, give me my animal back. That's how he sees her, and that is not like oh, and like just. That's not in line with how a lot of people interpret him, misinterpret Yes. Yes. For him, part of that whole, them being part of a whole means whenever he's alone, he just doesn't know what to do with himself. Mm -hmm. And I think that one year that he spent in, in the River Run cell just on his own, it really forced him to think about what it means just to be on his own and his own person. And, uh, you know, he's just separated from Cersei for so long where he's just sitting there like, hmm. What you know? What I want to do, and then when he's released, paired with Brienne, uh, that that's sort of like this thing that he just he's discovering that he's his own person, uh, separate from well, from Cersei. Well, that is I mean, that is that is whether that's actually going to happen or not is another thing. But I think that's what what's like the the that's what what the arc is kind of on right now. 
Because they do grow I, apart. Um, they do. And what I come to is why don't people also root for her to like become a her? I have like to, to like gain some that separation is, yeah. from it. You know, it's, a, it's always the like this type of the type of like, oh, like looking at them drifting apart is always coming from this place of like wanting him to have this redemption arc because mm -hmm. he's more, I mean, as in he is a better person than her. That's the yeah, bars on that's the floor there. One part of it, but, yeah. um, but also it's like, like for me, I have written a lot of fan fiction kind of AU stuff where she does get like other chances at other types of sexual liberation. Um, and like, I like, if, if things went different, you know, I just think it's like, oh, I, it's so interesting to think about how Jamie can be outside of the framework of a Lannister, but no one ever thinks about that for her. But I think that, yeah. um, which just goes, it's about how she's like regarding the fandom. And also in terms of the empathy piece, you said, I mean, she is a horrible person. So it's not like, oh, you have to have empathy for her. Um, yeah, and Sam in the chat is wrote, Jamie's lack of empathy for Cersei always blows me away. The way he hates Robert because Robert gets to have Cer sex with Cersei, who is his, and not because Robert rapes her. That hit me hard. Yeah, I agree. That's one of the Great things point that in always the chat. Yep. hit me hard. And yep. so in terms of like, for me, it's like, yes, so these this is obviously very toxic, and I'm still so into it. So like, I'll do my little manifesto piece, then we could do analysis. Um, so for me, it's like, okay, so these two, we've actually been talking about these two toxic and unhealthy people are in a toxic and unhealthy relationship. And to me, I think they are too toxic and damaged to be with anyone but one another. I think that shipping these characters because their relationship is unquestionably the most psychologically complex. And for me as a reader, therefore the most engaging in the series, doesn't mean you think incest is okay. I'm a twin. Um, I ship them because I'm fascinated by the literary and psychological of their relationship. And I want them to be and die together because they're just too intertwined with one another to be or die with anyone else. Really, and there is a fatalism to that, that I'll admit. Like, as a therapist, I would not encourage my patients to be like, well, I'm so intertwined in this thing that I'm not even going to bother getting out. And I'm just going to like fully immerse myself in it. But this is fiction, guys. This is like what, it, what appeals to me in fiction is not what I encourage in real life. Um, so the relationship to me shows what happens to two people who can't love another person unless that other is some form of extension of themselves. Um, it's a doomed romance that takes the idea that one's romantic partner should be their other half to the greatest possible ex exaggerated extreme to the extent that I see it almost as a critique of that societal standard because it shows how codependency leads to the inability to differentiate self from other or create a sense of independent identity in a healthy way. Um, like and, uh, what kind of what's coming up for me is you said he's in this, he's in the cell for a year and he has time to think about himself. Like the second he gets out, his first in in storm, his first thought of like it's about Cersei. So it's like you yeah, have it's a like he thinks of Cersei's fingers when the, when he feels yes, the, for the win. Yeah, yeah, it's like you're and also in his scene with Catelyn, he's all that he's doing that defended. There is no other man like me, only me stuff. Yeah. Um, it's like yes, he had a year. Like you have a year to self reflect, and you're still being fucking like it's. <laughs> I think it's it's really it's losing the hand. It's losing the yeah, hand that yeah. changes the self aspect, not the like being away from his family. Very true. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, speaking of the, the thing with the hand, uh, that's another interesting point. I think it's in Feast for Crows where that exact same line is repeated, but it says uh, that the wind is like a woman's fingers, not Cersei's fingers, mm -hmm. which uh, is a very subtle way from George R. Martin to, to to opening the up the idea that Cersei, uh, Jamie is starting to think of you know, the idea that you could be intimate, romantic, like the, the wind and all that stuff with people that are not sassy, but other women. And then he still has the thought of, I'm in, in dance when it's like, hey, I'm going back to King's, like going back to King's Landing. And then a voice says to him in his head, for Cersei. Um, it's yeah. always there. Yeah. He's not, he is not yeah. out of that hole. And she's on, 
neither of them are. They just, I think they're just, it's, um, it just, it's the song, but it, there's so many songs that remind me of them. It's, it's Born to Die by Lana Del Rey. It's the, um, it's um, the same Deep Water as You by The Cure. Like that's just them. And I think there's yeah. something just really beautiful and tragic about this relationship. And I love luxuriating and the darkness and the beauty and the tragedy of it. Yeah. So that now you mentioned in your your, your what you just said about why you think they they belong together because they're just so damaged that they couldn't ever have a healthy relationship with anyone else. It would else. not be fair to anyone else who <laughs> yeah. them, you know? Bria deserves better than Jamie. I definitely agree. Um, and so you say that you want them to die together. So here's my thing then. Because in Feast for Crows, when he receives that letter, Jamie knows that he's not good enough to, to win a, a trial by combat against really anyone. So he's basically presented by Cersei with the perfect opportunity to die with her. Because if he dies in that trial by combat, she will also die. So why do you think... He, I mean, he disregards that, as you pointed out earlier, because he found out about the infidelity, and that made him sort of like, not let go, but but distance himself from Cersei and think, at least, that he doesn't care about her anymore. Uh, but what, like, the significance of this moment really cannot be understated, because basically he's condemning her to die, because he knows that if she's found guilty, she's going to die. And I think, you know, basically letting someone die because they cheated on you, not a great thing to do. <laughs> um, to address your question, I, yeah. I think he's in um, in the form of therapy we use a lot in my work called dialectical behavior therapy (DBT). Um, there's this what we call the three states of mind: emotion brain, reason brain, and wise brain. And he's when he, that I'm condemning you to die is emotion brain, and that's when you're. I mean, it speaks for itself. It's like that feeling of when you're being you cannot like wise brain is and then we talk about reason brain is kind of computer brain like oh i'm doing this because it's what i should do but you're not taking your emotions into account and wise mind is when you're taking both emotion and reason into account so i think that for him that is he's just very deeply an emotion brain in that part but i think i don't think him going back to her is going to be about rescuing her this is i mean we don't we can't see the i mean i may be a wise priestess but i can't fully see the future um so I think it'll actually come from, and this is why I'm like not so into the him being the Valonqar, even though I think it is what it is. Um, I'm into okay, I'm into it if he comes and strangles her and she like stabs him during it and they die together. Like I'm not gonna let him just get away with that thing. Um, so okay, yeah, they have a great yin yang relationship. Rian and Jamie, I'm still don't I still won't entertain it. Um, but anyways, so I can be very thirsty, as you can see. Is there there might be a reason that I that I'm so into as a character? Um, but so, so I think that he, like the going back to her, I, I don't know how it's going to happen because he obviously mm -hmm. what has to happen is what's going on with Lady Stoneheart. I do agree with Micah's thing about how that will go out. Micah has a whole theory about that. So I don't know how, we, I, I don't, I think George in a lot, not just this plot, but the whole fucking series has kind of written himself into a big hole. And that's why I don't really think we're ever going to get the next two books. Like there's just way too much going on. I don't know how any human could wrap it up, but I do. So I don't know how he's going to go back. I just think that he is going to be like, he's, he recognizes that he's in too deep. I don't think it'll happen like the Tits and Dragon show. I, I, now I'm just rambling. I don't know how it'll happen, but I think it's yeah. going to be him going I mean, to kill her. I, I think, think him, him traveling with Brienne for a while will definitely be a thing. I think he's probably going to keep going down that, that path of uh, 
the whole with you know, the whole thing about inner beauty and all that stuff. But that, but the reason that's happening, like my whole thing with that, is that his letter burning moment happened way too early. Like there's mm-hmm. two more books left, right. so he he has to go back because what is he's just gonna be a healthy human being being pals with Brienne for the next two books? <laughs> Obviously yes. not. It would be a very no. George R. R. Martin thing to do if he. If you just when you think you finally let go, there is something going down. I don't know if it's Cersei getting hitched up with Euron like she did in Game of Thrones. If if it's just her being in a really dire situation due to Aegon and Daenerys arriving, something is gonna twingle that that sense in him where it's like I have to go back and I have to yeah. save her. And then he can still kill her. I think he will kill her probably, yeah. unlike in the show. But he will not outlive her for very long. Whether he's get crushed by bricks or burned by someone else, uh, it, it he will definitely. Um, Die. They will die together, even if he technically kills her <laughs> before that. Right. Or it'll be something, something cool, something different. Like you said, how can any human wrap these books up? If any human can do it, it's George Armand. <laughs> but I think, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's going like to be interesting. Point, yeah, I like your point about the letter burning coming too early, because I don't think it necessarily comes too early. It's just that he's very much an emotion brain in that point. And what it comes too early in the sense of, yeah, he's not over this. He's not, he's, he's not a new person, because when he is asked um, by the woman in dance, I don't remember her name, but the woman in dance asked, do you have a wife? And he thinks to himself, I don't have a wife, I have a sister. He's still thinking of her as a sister wife. So like, he's not, you know, like he's, he's still not there. So he's like, the letter burning is like, oh, I'm, it's like, I think we all have these moments where we're like, like I'm thinking of one patient of mine who like has struggles with, um, with, with drugs. And one day was like, I just threw them, like just said to me, like, I just threw them all out because I realized like, I'm using that as myself. Like it was the way they were talking was so sophisticated about it. They're like, I realized that this was related to my anxiety and that I don't need this anymore. And then a week later is like smoking again. So it's just like, I feel like it was kind of, it's kind of that type of thing. Probably. probably, Yeah. I mean, it's too, the tragedy of, of him going back eventually is too, too juicy, too good to just not happen. Cause what's the alternative him being in a healthy relationship with Brienne. You can, you can hate the way they did it in the show all they wanted but in the end they got they did get their you know bullet points from george r. r martin and that just to me seems like a thing that is very probably going to happen i think jamie's going to leave brienne and that's not just something that's going to be interesting for his arc but also for brienne's because part of her whole thing is that he, she has to realize that that she can feel good about herself without being validated by the likes of, of Jamie or, or anything like that. Just show him leaving her. It will definitely be a blow to her, especially because she does kind of have a crush on him a little bit. Mm-hmm. But uh, it'll be important for her to realize that, that she has her own worth as, as a human being and doesn't need Jamie or anything. So yeah, she don't need no of, man. <laughs> I, I think a lot of the B word discourse, the bravey discourse is kind of ends up wrapping up a lot of her worth in him, which really bothers me. But yeah, I just mm. think that, um, I think, I don't know what I think, but yes, I agree with a lot of that. I just don't think, think that. Something. I, yeah, I think something. I have a lot of thoughts on Jamie and Cersei. Um, Part of what <laughs> makes them so intriguing is that it's really hard to tell where their particular story is going to go as compared yeah. to some of the other people. Yeah. I guess where I, I think what I was thinking was again, it's like we're centering Jamie, which is fine. He's a very interesting character. But again, it's like Cersei gets lost in this in the same way that he overlooks what's going like those circumstances that force her to do the things that he reads as betrayal. Like, 
like we're talking, oh, is he over her, all that. What about her to him? You know, I think that there's, I think she still needs him too. Like she, in the, mo like the, I, I love you, I love you, I love you thrice in that letter, even if she's saying it, that's also emotion brain right there. Um, she still also yeah. needs him in order to feel complete, especially in her moment of weakness right now where she's, uh, where she's fighting for her, where she might be killed. She needs that, even though he isn't the warrior and they both know that in intellectually, emotionally, mm -hmm. they both still need to believe this. So to me, uh, the the letter that she sends him to me I, I never quite knew how to feel about it because when i first read the books and even still now it does kind of read manipulative like it's almost too it's a bit too theatrical where she's like come back i need you i love you i love you i love you it's kind of like you can tell that she's trying to trigger that protector syndrome thing that he has As, oh, uh, yeah 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 but the thing is, does she subconsciously want him to be the one to fight for her because she does have that whole thing about them dying together? Or yeah. does she seriously expect him to like actually win and, and save her life? Like, is she at that point done and thinks, if I'm going to die, I need to go out with him? Or does she actually still think that he can actually save her? Which would be strange because she knows he can't fight with his hand. I think it's both. I think there's a part of her where she's like, she also lets keep in mind, she has like not really eaten in a very long time at this point. She's been like starved. So... She's probably not in like the best brain space, but well, I mean, when is she ever? But especially now. And so um, I do think that it is that. I think the subconscious, it's like, yeah, if you can't live without, we can't live without each other. So if I'm going to die, you might, we might as well go down together. Mm -hmm. I think neither of them can stand the idea of the other one living on once they've died. Neither can I. <laughs> neither can i yeah 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 yeah. like i just need okay. them for me i mean lana del rey wrote born to die about them as i said like they just their faith <laughs> are just wait like there's as or and from a literary perspective because i do have that background there are so many interesting parallels and so many times when they both talk about dying together that for that to not happen would be like the biggest Chekhov's gun and i know george likes oh, to yeah. subvert our expectations but this is just like it's just so poetic and as i said i'm not endorsing people having fucked up relationships and dying together in real life. But as a reader, I'm drawn to darkness and I love it. Yeah, I think I may have to put the link to your Spotify playlist into the description as well as the, the fan fictions so, so people can get the full experience, visual and, and audio. Uh, yeah, so that's all that. Uh, we've we've cut, uh, At this point, I think we covered, you know, how that relationship began, Taiwan being an awful piece of shit father that he is, where we think it's going to end up um, no, there was another thing that you really wanted to talk about, which is uh, the the gothic influences and symbolism of their relationship. So we have, with a half an hour left, or a little less than half an hour left, uh, we can get into that now, if you want to. You're still muted. I mute yourself. Oh, no, I was just like, oh, no, because I think it's also super, super important to analyze both step scenes, but mm -hmm. I'll do my best. Um, so, so basically, in terms of gothic literature, um, something I've written about in my former academic life is the idea of loss of self as a form of terror. Um, so basically, there a text that informed a lot of classical Gothic literature is Edmund Burke's A Philosophically Philosophical Inquiry into the Origins of Our Ideas of the Sublime and Beautiful from 1757. So the sublime, as opposed to the beautiful, is that which has the power to compel and destroy us. Terror as fusion. And hello, that's this relationship has the power to compel and destroy them. So the sublime versus the beautiful is darkness, which stands in contrast, so interestingly, to the golden twin's brightness. And so what basically the sublime is our strongest passion and grounded in terror. 
It is not exclusively unpleasant and give us delight. It overwhelms our faculty of reason such that we are rendered incapable of rational thought. So Burke writes, the passion caused by the great and the sublime in nature, when those causes operate most powerfully, um, is that the state of the soul of some degree of horror. The power of reasoning is lost, coupled with the infinity of an, ob of an object who cannot be seen distinctly. So there's a lot, that is to say, that there's a lot of the idea of horror in the sense of loss of self in Gothic fiction. So um, what I wrote about back in the day was I wrote about Dracula and what we'll talk more about what is Wuthering Heights. So Dracula, it's like, any or anything relating to vampires is about yourself literally being consumed, literally by the other, and then turning into that vampiric form. So you're, and then, so another big thing in terms of Jamie and Cersei that why I'm so into it is um, I'm not, I love the book Wuthering Heights. I'm not like a Wuthering Heights stan, but I do love it. And so their relationship is basically Catherine and Heathcliff, but if George took it to its even like more extremes and Wuthering Heights being a very foundational Gothic text, although not as much so as like 18th century stuff. So um, for those of you who have not read it, um, it's about, Heathcliff is this like orphan kid taken in by this by the Earnshaw family and him and Kathy have this basically Jamie Cersei relationship is the only way to describe it and when she dies he just cannot he's they're both horrible and he just becomes even more horrible when she dies and he can't stand it so basically I feel sorry I'm looking to my where is my thingy um right so because because Wuthering Heights is the story of two two terrible people who can only feel whole with one another in a codependent relationship, I just feel like George unintentionally played with Kathy and Heathcliff's relationship by making them literal twins. And I'm really fascinated by this concept in her parallels. So the most probably the most famous passage in the book is Kathy says to her maid, Nellie, Nellie, I am Heathcliff. He's always, always in my mind, not as a pleasure any more than I am always a pleasure to myself but as my own being. If, oh, and then before that, she says, if all else perished and he remained, I should still continue to be. If all else remains and he were annihilated, the universe returned to a mighty stranger. I should not seem a part of it. Um, my love for Heathcliff resembles the eternal rocks beneath, a source of little visible delight, but necessary. Now we also have Circe saying, um, now we also, I cannot die while Cersei lives, he told himself. We will die together as we were born together. Cersei saying, if he were dead, I would know it. We came into this world together, uncle. He would not go without me. We will leave this world together as we once came into it. And then in the scene I want to analyze when she talks, she says, I need you. You are my other half. You are me. I am you. I need you with me, in me. Please, Jamie, please. Uh, we are more than one person in two bodies. We are, we are one person in two bodies. So that's literally the Kathy Heathcliff stuff. And the, I think the terror in that, that relates to Gothic literature and that also what puts people off about this relationship so much is that that's scary. The idea of completely your identity being so subsumed into someone else's. It's very unpleasant to think about. Um, and that's what in Gothic literature is used to create an idea of terror of loss of self. And also I think going on with JC. Um, so like Heathcliff also um, at one point says, sorry, I'm finding, where is the Heathcliff quote? Um, sorry, so after Catherine dies, Heathcliff says, may you not rest there as long as I am living. You said I killed you, haunt me then. The murdered do haunt their murderers. I believe, like, be with me always, drive me mad. Only do not leave me in this abyss where I cannot find you. Oh God, it is unutterable. I cannot live without my life. I cannot live without my soul. Which is like, 
that's Jamie and Cersei right there. So I'm just so compelled by the parallels there. And that's why I think that's why I really want them to die together to fulfill this narrative arc. Like as we're seeing with Heathcliff, if you've read the book, once Catherine dies, he's even more of a hot mess. So we, I'm like, let's not have that happen, Jamie or Cersei. They could just die as hot messes together instead of becoming even more hot messes because like, God knows what that would look like. I mean, yeah, that's all uh, great points. I haven't read that book, Withering Heights. Uh, I know it's one of those ones where you get lucky if you get around reading it in school, but I kind of, even though I studied English literature, I mean, I still do, I kind of never read it. I don't know why, <laughs> maybe I should, but it's a very good uh, parallel. And you mentioned you want to get into that, that one scene from Feast for Crows uh, a little more. So unmute yeah yeah and yeah. there's also and there's also there's it's two parallel scenes really there's the infamous sex scene in the sex the sex scene um that there's a lot going <laughs> yeah. on and these sex, scenes sex. are very much yeah there's are parallel scenes but so like in in a storm of swords i think both these scenes are almost like the most crucial to relationship and the feast or crows one people never really look at but in terms of storm so um so she kissed him a light. So she's like shocked when he came back. And he's and she's actually what's interesting is her initial external reaction to his maiming is not all that negative. She's still like, okay. So I think she just hasn't processed it yet. But um, she kissed him a light kiss, the merest brush of her lips on his, but he could feel her tremble as he slid his arms around her. I am not whole without you. Um, and then, you know, the sex. So this is what I find in terms of her gender trouble, in terms of why I love this relationship. Here's what comes in. So there's the sex. She's pushing back at him. I read it more as because of the situation and not because of not wanting to have sex with him because she like initiates the kissing. Um, also, she has her period. That's, I mean, I'm not gonna lie. That's, this scene is there. I do really like this. This is my only good sex scene in the series, in my opinion. I know people hate it because the awkwardness of the corpse. I forget the corpse is even there. I, I'm into. I'm also weird. I'm into blood, so whatever. But hurry, she was whispering now. Quickly, quickly now. Do it now. Do me now, Jamie, Jamie, Jamie. Her hands helped guide him. Cersei said, "Yes." Cersei said as he thrust. My brother, sweet brother, yes, like that, yes. I have you, you're home now, you're home now, you're home, and then home is italicized. She kissed his ear and short his, stroked his short, bristly hair. So like, she, ha I have him, I have you. She has him by literally possessing the phallus. Um, in in Lacanian's, in Lacanian's psych psychoanalysis, the idea of like possessing the phallus to feel whole is a big thing. And that's exactly what is happening with her right now. And like, also the idea for both, that for both of them, his home is being inside her. I like that. I think it's hot. <laughs> but but yeah, like, I mean, it's unhealthy, but whatever. Like, it just, I think this passage right here is so key to their relationship of how she needs to internalize him. E even though at this point he's still maimed, she's like, I feel so lacking without you that the desperation, what she's saying of Jamie, 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 repeating things, like, like what you said, that I love you, I love you, I love you thrice. Um, the desperation in there goes to so how deeply profound her emptiness is and that she's relying on him to fill that emptiness which again i would love her to find another way to fill that emptiness cough lesbianism but like still um it's that is what it is for him and they're not going to be able to find they're not healthfully developed enough and more importantly they're not living in westeros is not a world that gives them the avenues to develop healthily enough to find a better form of self-completion so in terms of so that's why i think that step so then what's interesting is People never talk about the second step scene, when feast. So the second step scene, I think, is such a great parallel to it 
And like, especially even like JC, pe people who are really into JC like I am, we never talk about this scene, it's beautiful. So he's guarding their father's rotting body in the set, same set that they fucked in. And so she comes dressed like a tavern wench. He could see the candles dance, candles dancing in her green pools of her eyes. That is just so beautiful and atmospheric. Love it. The hour of the wolf. Um, she smiled for him so sweetly. So I have in my I annotate my books a lot, as I mentioned. So in my annotated, I circled for him, and I wrote, whatever, however many years ago, performance for different men in her life. So because her sister lowered her hood and made it face the drowned wolf, perhaps she smiled for him so sweetly. She has to perform the sweet sweet sister for him, so that he can feel like the warrior and her the maid. Although it so that's really important, an important detail about the relationship. Um, and so then she says, be my hands, we'll rule the seven kingdoms together. Um, he says, you're Robert's queen and yet it won't be mine. I would if I dared, but our son, Tommen is no son of mine, no more than Joffrey was. His voice was hard. You made them Robert's too. Again, what the fuck was she supposed to do? Be like, yeah, these are my brothers. And he's resenting her for that. That is just not fair. Um, so then his sister flinched. She, you swore that you would, and then she becomes his sister. She's not like Cersei or his lover, just like his, like she comes a distance then. His sister flinched. You swore that you would always love me. It is not loving to make me beg. And again, that speaks to this, like I, even though he is really toxic, I, she does like subtly dom him in many ways. She's like, I can't be begging you in this relationship. Like I, she's relying on this relationship to feel whole and complete and powerful. And she, to beg is to feel not powerful. Um, so he wanted to take him in his arms and kiss her, to bury his face in his golden curls, but he says, I cannot, I will not. And then, this is the part that is so heavily marked up in my book as a, as a Cersei Studies scholar. She says, I need you. So need is an italic, so she really needs him. I need my other half. He could hear the rain pattering against the windows high above. You are me. I am you. I need you with me, in me. Please, Jamie, please. Oh, God, you can see I have a lot marked up. With the you are me, I am you, I had written Wuthering Heights, because literally Wuthering Heights quote. And then also just the parallel to the Storm of Swords step scene, because in both of them, she says she needs she needs him inside her. And and also it's like in this consecrated space. So it's kind of this, it's interesting. It's like a perversion of the idea of a wedding where it's like we need to be in each other in this holy sacred space where people are wed to one another to like consecrate our marriage. Um, I don't know if consecrate is the right word, but um, to kind of legitimize our marriage in the eyes of our, our union in the eyes of the gods because we can't actually do it legally. Um, so, but I just, the, her desperation here is just so interesting to me. And it, what, it goes to, it's just the perfect illustration of what we were saying about the, why this relationship exists and why she needs, like, why she needs it to feel whole. Um, especially in, these are both moments of weakness where she's, first she lost a son, the second one she's lost a father, and her son is, was someone who she could enact power through. Because she, like, again, Lacanian psychoanalysis about phallocentrism, like, the I, kind of sees, I don't agree with this, but sees women and like sons, like the son can be the enactment of like ha possessing phallic power. So him being king is like, she can live, basically live vicariously through that. And now he's gone. And now with father being gone, there's like this other sort, like their their dad is what gives them power. They're gonna always draft, draft like, well, my father, the inventor of war criminals, will have a word with you. Um, so then he continues to reject her, 
Cersei wiped her tears away on a ragged bag's brown sleeve. I see that as a very theatrical thing. So again, it's that performance for him. Um, she jerked very well. If it is battlefields you want, battlefields I should give you. That's hot. Um, she jerked her hood up. I, I also like mean dom ladies, so whatever. She jerked her hood up angrily. I was a fool to come. I was a fool to ever love you. And what's really challenging is like, I want this scene from her perspective too, because like the yes, there's a performative aspect, but I also think there's an earnest aspect. I just really am dying to get inside her head of when she says, I was a fool to ever love you. I mean, the, the interesting parallel with, with those scenes is that in the, the first set scene in Storm of Swords, it's Jamie coming to Cersei. Mm -hmm. And oh. then in Feast for Crows, it's Cersei coming to Jamie. And uh, Cersei wants something from him. And Jamie wants something from Cersei when he comes into the Sept. Now, Jamie primarily just wants to be with her and have sex with her. That's like his main thing when he when he goes back into the Sept and Storm of Swords. And when Cersei comes to him, what she needs from him is his support. She doesn't really come there to have sex with him. She comes there to to ask him to help her rule the realm because with her son and her brother gone, uh, her father gone, she's kind of feeling like she's losing that hold on power that was made possible through having these men in her life that she can kind of like use to to secure her own power now that they're gone she really feels like she has to attach herself even more to jamie because he's one of the only ones left the only lannister men left who, who can help her yeah, keep, the, keep think, her power and i think that's part of why people do the whole like oh babying jamie thing of like she she only goes to him when she wants something from him whereas he actually like is more earnest but the thing is as I've been saying, love is not a pure thing. A lot of love and what we want from one another is, is driven by an agenda. And to recognize that Cersei's being driven by an agenda when she seeks love is, I think, I know for me, as, a, as, as I mentioned, I do relate to her in certain ways. And for me, it's been very helpful, actually, for my own therapeutic purposes to acknowledge the ways in which when I go to certain people for certain things, what is that I'm trying to get something for myself. Um, and I think that that is an ugly truth that a lot of us just don't really feel equipped to look at in ourselves. And we want to identify more with the Jamie who's like, I just want to fuck. But um, there's also, I'm just looking for the quote. I can't find it, but the one where he says, she always, she always makes me come to her. Um, I have it in my notes, but I can't, these notes are so long. I can't find it. But like, basically he's saying like, they can, ugh, looking for it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the, the crux of it is, yeah, he, he, he laments that she's always the one that makes him come to her. She never comes to right. him for something. Right, yeah, yeah, take the word come as you might. Which um, makes the, set, so the scene in Feast for Crows even more interesting because she does come to him because mm -hmm. she, she wants something and needs something. Yeah, and it's interesting. He's like, no, in Feast for Crows, like, oh, we can't do it here. I'm like, bro, it didn't stop you the first time, right? Like, come on. Yeah, it didn't stop you when you were in the mood for it. <laughs> right, exactly. It didn't stop you when you're horny, but if she wants something, mm. how dare she? And and also, mm. like, it's not wrong. I don't think it's, like, philosophically wrong where someone would be horny because they want something. We all, from someone else, mm. we all want something from other people. I don't know. Like, like it's, if she, as I said, like, I have this headcanon where she gets off on kind of seeing herself in the male position when they fuck, and if that's what turns her on, you go, girl. Do it. Whatever. Yeah. But like, yeah. There's. I love the pair. Like comparing those two scenes because at that, like, this is the difference. Is at this point she realizes that. Um, yeah, it's from the beginning of the step scene. Um, so, so he's looking like the difference is 
Also, this is after he realizes that she has slept with other men. Yes, so she has never come to me, he thought. This is step scene number one in Storm. She has always waited, letting me come to her. She gives, but I must ask. And when he's forced and kind of like, so when he has to give, it's like, he's like, I don't know how to do this. What? It kind of reminds me of certain patients I have where they're so used to powerlessness that when I give them power, they actually like freak out. Like one girl I, I work with, um, she, I remember at one point she was saying like, nothing's helpful for me, nothing's helpful, like, I don't like this. So I said, okay, like, I want to make this time useful for you. What would be, a, how could we use this time in a way that would be helpful for you? And then she started like screaming at me. Because <laughs> she just didn't even, because she like, she just did not know what to do with that power. Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah. And there is that thing, there is the thing that Littlefinger says about Cersei, that she doesn't know what to do with mm -hmm. power when she has it and that she wants it. And Jamie, on the other hand, uh, very much doesn't want power. Uh, he, like, he, he rejects any offer of Cersei when he's, and he's just like, be the hand, be this, be that. And he's like, no, I would never want to do any of that. He, he just kind of wants to... Uh, yeah, he just... He, he doesn't want power, so he does want power, both like in the relationship as well as just like political power in yeah in and i think that i think that we as people just want to see ourselves in the more in the like as oh like I do, i'm not someone who just seeks power through relationships but like we do and that's why i'm really compelled by this relationship because it's about the ways in which we do for both of them not just her both of them yeah both that's really the the main if, if there's a big takeaway from this uh episode it's that it's both of them and a lot of this talk about Jamie and Cersei's relationship very often is just done in regards of Jamie's development as a character. And I really appreciate yeah. that throughout you know our discussion, you pointed out that it's important to look at Cersei's part of it as well, because they are two parts of a whole. And yeah. and, and, and there are these, these parallels that you've pointed out, yeah. A big piece thing that comes up for me in that regard is him joining the Kingsguard. And people are always like, well, she talked him into it. She forced him. Okay, you don't talk someone into something they don't want to do. Um, you can lead a horse to water. So it's like, yeah, he doesn't. Like, I was thinking of that because you are saying about him wanting, not wanting power. Sure, he doesn't really necessarily want the power to make decisions because he's lazy. And that's a mood. I, I also, I don't get people who want the throne in this series. I'm like, no, yeah, please no, let me be just no. like, I'm just going to be a braviosi courtesan doing my thing. Um, I, I, like, I, 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 I really, like, when Jamie says, hell no, I don't want to be the hand, I'm like, I yeah. completely 100% understand that, that mindset. Yeah, yeah. I get it. Same with, with Ned. I'm like, no, get me away from it. But, um, but I think, but like, he does want that glory and the honor of being Arthur Dane, of being the Blackfish, being with the Blackfish. That's other conversation. But, um, but so he, he's also doing it for selfish purposes too. He doesn't have to do it. She's not, forcing him to she's 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 playing a role in the persuasion but it's not like he says like that most of the things he had done had been for honor for glory but all, mostly for Cersei if he admitted it to himself doesn't negate the part that for honor and for glory are a huge part of that yeah exactly like it's it's sure she like she like snuck into his bed or whatever and had sex with him and then and the next morning thrilled. he decided to <laughs> yeah but it's like if you're that easily convinced dude 
right. maybe you're just not very smart. You know, like he didn't make that choice. He, he still has like a functioning brain. So putting right. it on Cersei for ruining his life or making him join the King's Guard is is very single minded. It's not and like also, this guy cannot make decisions for himself. The other two things are firstly, he doesn't even really view it as, oh, she ruined my life. He likes being part of the King's Guard. It, it serves that function for him of like, look how powerful and awesome I am that I'm in the King's Guard, you know? And then also the thing is, um, now I forgot. <laughs> you forgot the thing? Yeah, I mean, there is that bit, maybe to talk about, there is that bit where he says that it was the white cloak that soiled me, not the other way around. Mm. So he does have kind of this idea that him joining the Kingsguard is kind of like what set him on uh, not an ideal path in life, but you can't really put that one on Cersei. Like, it's not that, it's she wanted oh. to be with him, and he wanted to be with her as well. It's not like he... He needed much convincing. <laughs> I remembered the thing I was thinking of. I was thinking of, okay, so like, if it's uh, if it's the mentality is, oh, if she, if I don't do this, okay, what's she going to do? Like, she's, yes, it's, she's not going to have him executed or something. She'll find a way to make his life hell probably in some form, but like, it's probably not going to be, it's not, like, it's not that bad. Like, so it's, when people are like, oh, he only joined, like, because he was so scared of, because she's like this abuser and he has to do everything she says. Like, what was what? Like, I mean, like, we don't have an answer, but it's like, what rhetorical question? What was he? She theoretically going to do to him if he didn't join? You know, probably like she as much power as she wields as queen. She also is a woman still, and he gains more power. He gains more from not joining the Kingsguard and pleasing his father than from pleasing her. Like, he has way more consequences. Tywin is a much scarier person to face consequences from i think although not in this case because like he needs her in order to feel like a complete person so i think again that's also driving him being in the king's already can't be away from her but it's not like she wasn't going to like put an assassin on him for if, if he turned it down so yeah yeah exactly uh yeah i mean all great points we are inching close to the one yeah. and a half hour mark so if there, is there any like any last point Anything else that we haven't touched on yet where you, that you would really like to get out there? You can always come back and do part two. I mean, I certainly have oh, lots Lord. more stuff that I could get into without this whole thing. <laughs> it's yeah, a lot of stuff we probably, haven't touched on I yet. Guess that, yeah, I mean, I could always say more. I think I just like would re I just so, so tired of people dismissing this relationship and not even bothering to look into it because of it being wrong and bad. And like, yeah. this is the, this is the inciting incident of the whole series. And mm -hmm. Just, we can't yeah. let our moralism, I'm not being like, yes, go incest, because like part of, so I, I don't, I think there's like, full polls will fall into it to like, this is so bad, we can't even think about it, or like glamorizing yeah. it. And I don't yeah. think that, and I, 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 for the thousandth time, I'm a twin. So like, this is not, so like, I, I don't like when people are like, oh my God, twin cess. Like people will, other people I know who are big JC shippers will like, reblog photos of them be like, Oh, twin incest is hot right now. And I'm like, they were yeah. not like I have no, I've no, the thing is I have personally known people whose lives have been ruined by incest. Um, oh yeah, so me too. Yeah. I I just see this. I see their relationship as being very very different from what makes incest normally so um, such a power imbalance mm -hmm. dynamic. Well, I'm also not condoning incest. Like I've had like when people use the word twin incest to describe them, I think of all the times that I'd tell a guy that I have a twin sister, and they'd be like oh, you guys should make out. I'm like, ugh. But, ugh. But yeah, like, no, I think it's just, there's just, human brains are sort of hardwired to just 
initially find incest disgusting just because it's not a great for reproducing. Well, I mean, so, so that's like psychoanalysis the, for Freud yeah. and the incest taboo, you know? But like, so mm -hmm, it's not. Mm -hmm. And also, I think there's also people who are like, oh, people only ship JC because they're too hot people fucking. So what? We're allowed to enjoy hot people fucking. And it's interesting. <laughs> like, that's like, you know, like, okay, like, that's not the only reason, but like, we're allowed. I'm, I'm sorry, we can be shallow. And like, so much of like the B word stuff is like, oh, we have to work against the like shallow thing. I'm like, sorry, like this is fiction. This is like, at, again, I'm all going to go back to this is fiction. This is not real life, you know? Like, like why are yeah, getting I mean, so yeah, it's, it's, about people what, like thinking about two hot, like in either, or either Lena Headey and, Nickel and Nickelodeon, Costco, Walmart, or, or in my head, kind of Margot Robbie and Travis Fimmel. Yes, I like to, I would enjoy the idea of them in coitus you know like it's hot and that's, i mean that's at the end of the day you may not like it but they are two consenting adults enjoying having sex with each other and there and is not people, much in terms of being like right. even the, 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 even i like saying that just makes me feel disgusted with myself just because there is that like just that that it, it kind of ingrained disgust and incest because i also have siblings well one mm -hmm. sibling and but but you have to sort of like put that i mean you can't put it on a shelf because it's an incredibly important aspect of their relationship but you, there's just so much more to it than just dismissing it as being gross and icky and 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 just wanting them to be anywhere else is right. Uh, yeah, like saying that you ship them. I wouldn't even necessarily say if I ship them because I don't think I have given up on them being able to move past. I mean, I have. I think that they're gonna be, end up together. I just wish they wouldn't because I do kind of want the best for people. But yeah, saying that you ship them just means that you enjoy having them interact as people in a relationship on the page because it's compelling as a story, and there's nothing wrong right, with that. Right. And then when I'll tell people that I'm into that, they're like, oh, well, you're just shallow. And like, it's because they're hot. I'm like, no, bitch. Like, I'm, I have multiple degrees in psychology. So it's because of that. I actually don't and think that they're, not, I mean, I don't think they're described as being attractive, but I don't, I, I think they're like, it's the same thing I have with the Targaryens. I don't think if I lived in Westeros, I would be attracted to them because I think they look too, too good. Oh. Well, I'm shallow. <laughs> right, like, so. I mean, it's but fine. You could be shallow. I, I mean, my biggest crush in the series is Asha, so like it depends. Yeah, and I she's not very conventionally handsome compared yeah. to Cersei. Right. Yeah. yeah. So for me, it's mm. not about. It's not like oh, I have a crush on Cersei. It's I find her the most fascinating like fictional character yeah. ever, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I mean, you know, I have a crush on fucking who is it? Satin or something. And he's described as being very attractive. So you again, we are allowed to yeah. like hot people doing yeah. weird yeah. things. Yeah. It's well, if I, if I were to be in a relationship, I'd probably. I'd probably pick Brienne just because it would be, I would be, I would feel very safe. For me, yeah, I think the <laughs> same is true for Asha, Asha. Honestly, yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say <laughs> Asha. For me, I also see like not just being hot, but also like a good partner in a relationship. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You wouldn't want to be in a relationship yeah. without a Jersey or Jamie. Jersey. No. <laughs> Jamie also. I just made up a, a ship name by accident. Jersey. Yeah, Jersey. I mean it's better than Twincest, you know. But um, it is better than Twincest. Um, so yeah. I, yeah, I guess that's... the thing that comes, uh, yeah, that comes that I come down to is like again, like I do think that them being twins, like it's not going to be incest, and it's crucial that they're twins and siblings because that mm. points to the Kohat's ideas of twir twinning, twinning, huh? Tw twinship, mirroring, um, idealization, all of which play into all interpersonal relationships, and then force yeah. us to confront the ways that those things come up in our relationships um more than we have and by putting up a very ugly mirror so actually it's funny um the song velvet underground 
I'll Be Your Mirror, which is on my JC playlist. It's all the lyrics. <laughs> I have to, have to put that yeah, in. The the lyri- the, the, yeah, the lyrics. <laughs> I've always connected the song with them. Um, the lyrics are, I'll be your mirror, reflect what you are in case you don't know. I'll, when you see the, wait, wait, wait. When you see the, when you see the, basically, okay. I'm not remembering. If you get this right, it would be a great quote to end the podcast on. <laughs> well, basically, so this song is saying, I'm going to reflect the darkness in you. It's about reflecting the darkness in one another. It's not like it comes mm. the song start. The song is sounds very much like a lullaby. It's very pretty, but then the lyrics are very dark, and it's talking about how you're going to like mirror the ugliness and darkness in one another, so you can't look away yeah. from it. And that, to me, is what this they do to one another, and what this relationship mm-hmm. does to us as readers. Yeah, see, being pretty, being ugly—that's certainly a Jamie Cersei. <laughs> that, that's yeah. major Jamie Cersei vibes, and mm-hmm. I think also a great way to call it an end for today, Rohan. Yeah. Unless you have anything else, thank you very much uh, for coming on. Guests like you are my favorite type of guests because I can just let them, let them talk, mute my mic, and good well, stuff comes out. <laughs> and, uh, you can do the like stuff about queerness that we originally talked about. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. You can definitely. We, we we're going to do a whole thing about like th- this episode originated as us wanting to talk about how terribly all the queer characters were adapted in the Game of Thrones, the show. And we can definitely still do that. We could maybe save yeah. that for Pride Month or something, you know, and, since we did this one for pride. Valentine's Day. Yeah, hmm? lack of pride and lack of pride. Lack of, lack pride, of pride, yeah. Adapting pride, it's <laughs> it's not great. Spoiler alert rat for that episode, it's, it's not, not great. Of the seven deadly sins, it's more wrath. <sighs> yeah, but yeah, that's it. Um, you can find this podcast on Anchor FM called Through the Mundo. You can find it on Spotify, uh, I think Google Podcasts, on all a bunch of other platforms. And the regular you'll, you'll po- it. I think it's on the, 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 like, the Apple Podcast app, too. That's where it's it's on all that stuff, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can find it on YouTube. Like, subscribe. Rohan, does, you do not have a YouTube, I think, but you do have a Twitter, no. which is down in the bio. Oh, Lord, so go Lord. follow that. Uh, and I'll, my, I, I will I would, put the oh, fan fictions. Other, yeah, the other thing I would it. plug is that I write them really, really well. Sorry, George. But yeah, um, I so I've written a lot of... I've written not a lot. I've written... A bunch of JC fix, so I'm specifically going to link to that. For those mm-hmm. of you who are interested in thinking their relationship more, it's not like I. What I try to do in my fanfic is it's not like oh they're just fucking, even though it's sex. It's really about what's going on psychologically with them. So mm-hmm. I, if you were interested in this conversation, you might be interested in some of that writing. Yeah, I put the playlist on in the background to get the whole uh, <laughs> yes. the audio visual experience. Well, yeah. and uh, again, if you're listening to this as a podcast on the day it comes out, Happy Valentine's Day, and if not. Just have a great day anyway. Thanks to everyone in the live chat for uh, watching live. Thanks for your great comments and questions. And I will see you all for the next episode, which I don't actually know yet what it's going to be. So it'll be a surprise. And goodbye, everyone.